Good morning, beloved. Pray you're doing well this morning. Uh, it's time for us to turn to God's Word. So let me offer a quick prayer. Father, we pray that you would speak to us now as we come to your Word. We believe your Word is alive, that it's active. We believe, O oh Lord, that in your Word we hear your voice. And so we pray, speak to us. Give us ears to hear. Push away the clutter and distraction that we might give our undivided attention to you. We pray this, O Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we are coming to the near the end of our series that we have called Embodied. We've been taking a, a look at what it means theologically to be creatures, to be people uh, who have a body, who have a physical form. We have been talking about the ways in which that has theological meaning. In the next few weeks, we'll bring the series to a close by thinking, Lord willing, next week about um, caring for the body. The week following that, uh, by God's grace, uh, we will think about when to sacrifice the body. And then finally, we will think about the death of the body. But before we sort of begin to land the plane with those series, those sermons, I, I wanted us to think about something that in my 25 years or so as a Christian, I don't think I've ever heard a sermon on. Uh, and until recently, I don't think I've ever read a, a book on. And that is the theology of the body as it relates to disability. We live in a world with many millions of people who have disabilities, and there are important questions that are raised um, by persons with disabilities or on behalf of people with disabilities that, as Christians, we need to think about theologically and be prepared to answer well. And that's what I want us to try and do this morning. We're going to ask and, and pursue answers to three questions. Number one, what is disability? What is disability? Number two... Can we talk about a theology of the body and disability? What would be the sort of beginning sketches of a theology of embodiment and disability? And then number three, how then should we live in light of that theology? How should we live in light of that theology? So let's take that first question. What, what is disability? As it turns out, that's a, a fairly complex question to answer. On one level, it's quite simple. That's, that there's an ability that we don't have. Um, but actually, there, there are layers to this, right? So you have to first answer, what do you count as a disability? How much impairment must a person experience in order for us to, to say that that's a, that's a disability? That's not an abstract issue either, because this is the kind of question that lies beneath uh, considerations of qualification for certain benefits and programs, for example. Uh, it's also complex because we then have to answer the question, who decides whether a person has a disability? Is it someone working in a government office thinking about those qualifications I just mentioned a moment ago? Is it a medical professional, a, a doctor? Are they the ones who have authority to decide what constitutes a disability? But what about the person, him or herself, that may be experiencing a limitation? How does their self-understanding uh, impact what we regard as disability or not? For there are many people with limitations who don't wish to be thought of as disabled, 
And there are many people who have limitations that others don't regard as disabled. So who gets to decide? And then we have to consider whether or not we are going to emphasize ability or disability. Do we focus on the impairment as a defining issue? Or do we focus on the person's abilities despite the impairment? Do we provide assistance and accommodations to uh, overcome those, those impairments? So defining disability actually in some ways begins to be rather complex. And rather than spend a lot of time trying to arrive at a precise definition, which not everyone will agree with anyway, I, I want to offer us a basic set of categories uh, for our thinking. Uh, and then I want to offer us a, a list of sources that contribute to what we call disability. So when we think about disability for the purposes of this sermon, I want to suggest three types, three categories. Uh, number one, they are what we might call physical disabilities. Um, these are impairments of the body, um, a loss of an arm or, or uh, an, an ill-developed leg or what have you. These are physical disabilities. Then there are sensory motor disabilities. So this is where we think about the, the ability to see or not see, to hear or not hear, to speak, and so on. And then thirdly, we talk about intellectual disabilities. So we think about various cognitive delays or impairments uh, and things of that sort. Now, those are categories of disabilities, but there are also several different types of causes of disability. So some uh, occur at birth, congenital um, disabilities. Uh, there are other disabilities that are created by disease or illness. Sometimes disability results from accident or trauma. Think about someone who's lost a limb in a war or a car accident, for example. But in the Bible, there are two other sources of disability that are also listed. Sometimes disability is talked about in the context of divine judgment. So when God talks about his people turning away from him in rebellion, he may say, hey, I'm going to send the people against you who are going to cripple you, maim you, things of that sort. And then sometimes in the scriptures, disability is associated with demonic activity, with demonic oppression. Um, that's, that's not typical of how the Bible talks about it. Demonic activity tends to be concentrated uh, around unique uh, periods of God's revelation, but, but that's there in the scripture. So here's a definition I would offer then. Uh, a disability is an impairment of our bodies that limits the body's use in some way to such an extent that the person faces the risk of marginalization, oppression, poor health, and possibly death. So disability is not just a physical issue, but also then a social, economic, uh, relational, and political issue because of the implications that the limitation has for the person with the disability. Now, you would not find these types of limits, the categories I gave you, uh, listening in the Bible. Instead, what we find in the Bible are a few prototypical disabilities that are kind of symbolic of the whole range of impairments that sometimes affect us. For example, throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament, especially the Gospel, the Bible refers to um, the blind, the mute, the deaf, and the lame. The blind, the mute, the deaf, and the lame. And those particular ailments um, fit into the the physical and the sensory motor categories, but they are used as, as a summary of all kinds of disability. 
So when you survey the Bible for disabilities, you realize there's no section of the Bible that sort of discusses at length uh, this issue. But at the same time, these issues are kind of always present in the Bible, uh, from the Old Testament all the way through the New Testament. If I use an illustration, uh, the issue of disability is like an, an upright bass player in a jazz uh, band. Well, he's there all along, strumming that bass, keeping time, keeping tune, keeping rhythm. If he were not there, you, you would miss him. But he's almost never out front, prominent. Right? He's behind the scenes, as it were, um, in the sort of warp and woof of the band. Well, same thing is true with persons with disabilities in the scriptures, it's not like there's a spotlight that zooms in on them in this extended way, but they're kind of always there, right? And always being addressed, particularly in the Gospels and, and the ministry of our Lord. So that brings us then to a, a second thing then. What can we talk about a theology of the body and disability? Well, obviously I think so. That's why we're having this sermon. Uh, but more than that, I think it's critical that we talk about this and that we reflect upon this, in part because of how many people are affected by it. Let me give you just a few statistics. According to the U.S. Census Bureau, an estimated 48.9 million people um, have a disability. It's a lot of folks. Another, an estimated 24.1 million people have a severe disability. That means that they're unable to perform one or more sort of um, regular routine activities of, of self-care uh, and engagement in society. 24.1 million people. And an estimated 34.2 million people uh, have a functional limitation, uh, kind of disability where they're able to do self-care, but they're, they're unable to uh, participate in other ways that most people kind of take for granted, lifting of things, walking, uh, things of that sort. Now, what these numbers mean is that almost 30% of all American families are impacted by disability. Almost one out of three families are have a member who has a disability, uh, they're caring for someone who has a disability, and so on. So we're not talking about an isolated issue. We're talking about an everyday reality for a significant percentage of the population. That's why we need to do a theology of the body and disability. Well, what would that theology emphasize? And here, I want to give us six things to think about from the scriptures. We survey the Bible a little bit. First thing this theology should emphasize is that God is sovereign in creating people with disabilities. God is sovereign in creating people with disabilities. Uh, perhaps the first place that we encounter some form of impairment in the Bible is in Exodus chapter 4. The book of Exodus, as you know, is that book where God calls Moses um, to go to his people Israel and free them from their bondage in slavery in Egypt. Uh, Exodus chapter 4 is where God um, meets Moses in the, in the burning bush and calls Moses to this task. And there's a, a dialogue that happens between Moses and God where Moses tries to give a lot of sort of excuses for why he shouldn't do this. And in Exodus 4... Verses 10 to 12, this is what we read. But Moses said to the Lord, Oh, my Lord, I am not eloquent, either in the past or since you have spoken to your servant. But I am slow of speech and of tongue. 
And the Lord said to him, Who has made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now therefore go, and I will be with your mouth and teach you what you shall speak. So in verse 10, uh, Moses confesses a speech impediment. He understands himself to have some kind of sensory motor disability. It's not just that he's not eloquent, that he's not a good speech giver. Uh, it, it's that, in fact, he, he sees an impairment. He's slow of speech and of tongue. But notice God's response in verse 11. God reminds Moses that he is the creator of humanity, including the mouth. But then the Lord goes further and says that he, God, is the maker of the mute, the deaf, the seeing, and the blind. In other words, disability comes under the sovereign creation of God. Harold Wilkie is a theologian who himself has a disability, is reflecting on this issue. And he writes this, Causation by God is again and again stated in the Bible. Literally, uh, dozens of times, the Bible reports that the disabling condition or situation is of God. You see God at work in this. God ordained the handicap. Now, God's sovereign creation of disability, then, has at least three implications. First, this means that a disability, though it can be a severe hardship and limitation, is not ultimately an accident. It's not something that happens by chance as if God was uninvolved. No, the Lord makes, verse 11 says, the deaf, the mute, the seeing, and the blind. Again, I, I, I understand how this can be unsettling in some ways, as if God has done something to someone. But think about it this way. What would it mean to say a person's, what would it mean um, to a person's identity and faith, to say or suggest that their disability is outside of God's control. That notion would have far more consequence, I think, negative consequence, than recognizing that this hard thing that, that is in my life, a part of my life, is actually come into my life through the hands of God who made me. So, so... The fact that God is sovereign here implies that this is not ultimately an accident. There is divine purpose involved in it. Secondly, it implies that having a disability is not in itself evil. God does not do evil. He makes no mistakes, including disability. Now, that's difficult to accept, especially with severe and profound disabilities. But it's true. And accepting that God sovereignly makes disability helps us to think better about disability itself and to, and, and to think better about God's presence in our midst. He's there with Moses in that disability. And then thirdly, God's sovereign creation of people with disabilities means that everything else we have said about the theology of the body in this entire series applies to people with disabilities. All the previous sermons that we have heard, now we, we want to bring into focus, we remind ourselves of, when we think about our family members and our friends and our co-workers who have some kind of intellectual or um, sensory or physical impairment, their body is a gift from God. 
Their body is good. Their body is necessary. I mean, it's their body that allows them to exist as persons, and it's their existence as persons that are blessings to us. Their bodies, like our own bodies, limit us blessedly. It limits them differently, but no less blessedly. We, we share in this limitation. Their body places them blessedly. Again, it may place them differently. It may be um, confined to a, a bed or have to use a, a wheelchair. But that limitation in place is a, merely of a different degree or kind than the limitations we all uh, endure as embodied beings. And they are made in God's image, as all people are, which means that they are, they are beings who are social by nature, who are capable of self-giving love. And, and their bodies are engendered, just as our bodies are, which point to God's creative capacity. So their bodies are signs, just as our bodies are signs. And their bodies point to the kingdom of heaven, uh, as we'll see in a moment, in its own unique way, just as our bodies point to the kingdom of heaven. And so all the theology we've been considering, we want to be applying to how we think about and see and regard and serve and engage and learn from and benefit from with people with disabilities. God has sovereignly made them. There's a second thing for our theology that God works through people with disabilities. Notice again uh, in verse 12. Exodus 4, verse 12 says, Now therefore go, and I will be with your mouth, and teach you what you shall speak. God is present, promising to be present with Moses and to work through Moses' disability, to work through the, the very place of Moses' disability, through his mouth. Moses' speech impediment is no barrier to God's use of him. Moses' speech disability does not turn God away from him. God comes to Moses. God stays with Moses, and, and God teaches Moses, and God uses Moses. And even though Moses, in some sense, is a unique figure in redemptive history, we have strong reason to believe from the rest of the Bible and the nature of God's character that the same possibilities and truths apply to anyone who has a disability. God is with them, and God works through them. This is important because society tends to treat people with disabilities uh, as if they had very little value, and as if they could make no meaningful contribution to society. Society, historically and even presently, has treated people with disabilities as burdens and worthless Nothing could be further from the truth for anyone made in God's image and likeness. Most people with disabilities are quite capable of many things with, with appropriate supports. So a good theology of embodiment and limitation should put the stress, I would argue, not on the disability as such, but on God's capability of using people with limitations. So we could apply this, to example, to, for example, to assistive technologies, things like walkers and canes, wheelchairs, um, speech devices, hearing aids, 
All those things are technologies that theologically uh, simply allow, by God's common grace, uh, God to sort of use and work through and even overcome some of the limitations that people with disabilities face. That's not just a technological innovation. We need to think about that technology theologically. Right? Or think about various kinds of social supports. My first job out of college, I was what's called a, a job coach. I worked with people with disabilities, people with um, developmental delays, and uh, people with traumatic head injury, and trained them to work in the workplace, to be in competitive work environments. And my whole job was to sort of go into a workplace, train them to do the job, the actual task, and train the co-workers to support that person socially and, and professionally. I, I, I'll never forget, I had a, a client, let's call him Fred. Uh, Fred was from birth uh, blind, uh, mute, and deaf. Communicated by tactile sign, which like nobody in the workplace knew or understood. He got a job in a restaurant doing food prep, working with blades, chopping foods, all that good stuff. Now, my initial thought was, this man can't see, he can't hear what's happening in this busy kitchen, he can't talk. How in the world is he going to do food prep? But the organization I worked with had a, a philosophy that people with disabilities were capable of doing uh, most anything the rest of us could do with the proper supports. He held that job for years working effectively as a person um, with, with limited speech, inability to hear, inability to speak because of social supports. And if we have a theology that sees that God actually works through people with disabilities, we begin to take the limitations on and begin to imagine the possibilities. Which brings us to a third thing. People with disabilities reveal God's glory. Let's jump forward to the New Testament. John chapter 9 records this situation. Verse 1, as he, Jesus, passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? And Jesus answered, it was not this man, uh, it was not that this man sinned or his parents but that the works of God might be displayed in him. Verse 1 focuses, again, on a man who was born blind. So he's had this, uh, this impairment since his birth, sensory disability. Verse 2 reveals an interesting assumption among the disciples. And, and it's an assumption that you sometimes hear or maybe experience even today. Some people uh, thought then and some people think now that if someone has a disability or an illness or a disease, uh, that, that somewhere along the way there's been some kind of sin um, that they've committed personally that created that situation. Now, it's possible for a disability to be the consequence of someone's sin. Think, for example, of a woman who uh, engages in drunkenness throughout her pregnancy. The baby may be born with fetal alcohol syndrome, right? That, that syndrome is a consequence uh, tied to that woman's sin during the pregnancy. So that's, that's a possibility, but that's not normally the case, and that's not what's in view in this text. Sin is not ordinarily the source of a limitation. Remember, God makes the deaf, the mute, the lame, and so on. According to Jesus in verse 3, the Lord points out that this disability was, was not the outcome of sin. Rather, there's a very different purpose. 
this disability is so that the work of God might be seen in this person. The blind man's embodiment is designed for the display of God's works. In his weakness, we are meant to see God's power. Now think about it. Isn't this how the New Testament reasons? How Paul reasons about his weakness and his power? Paul prayed for his thorn in the flesh to be removed. But do you remember what he tells us in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 9? God spoke back to him and said, my grace is sufficient for you. Why? For my power is made perfect in weakness. Theologically, the existence of weakness, including disability, is for the revelation of God's power. That's, that's one of the reasons it exists. Paul sees this as the, as the logic of the cross, even. So he writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 4, For he, meaning Christ, was crucified in weakness, but lives by the power of God. Christ shares our weakness. He, in the words of Isaiah, shares our infirmity. Uh, indeed, I think most folks who read Isaiah 53, thinking about the words there that uh, he had nothing in him that we esteem, he had no form that we found beautiful, we considered him stricken, smitten, afflicted, uh, folks who read it from the point of view of disability often think of the Lord as possibly having a disability and, and sharing in some kind of limitation. And the logic of the cross is this. Christ was crucified in weakness, but he lives by the power of God. And that logic plays itself out in the Christian life, and it plays itself out in the life of persons with disabilities. I love the way one writer puts it. One writer with a disability says, People with disabilities are like everybody else. Each person is unique and important, whatever their culture, religion, abilities, or disabilities. Each one has been created by God and for God. Each of us has a vulnerable heart and yearns to love and be loved and valued. Each one has a mission. Each of us is born so that God's work may be accomplished in us. So a theology of embodiment and disability trains us then to look at the person with a disability expecting to see God's power revealed through them. We're meant to expect to see and to do the works of God. Verse 4 of John 9 goes on to say, We must work the works of him who sent me, while it is day, night is coming when no one can work. In the immediate context, that saying is connected to our including and caring for people with disabilities. Their, their bodies, their lives, are the theater for revealing God's glory, just as ours. A fourth aspect of this theology. People with disabilities reveal where the we have the heart of God. While we're in John 9, consider what happens next to the blind man who's been healed. Verse 8, the neighbors all see it, and the people who knew him say, hey, is this this cat that was blind from birth? 
In verse 13, they take him then to the Pharisees, and the Pharisees begin to question him uh, first about his healing, but then really begin to suspiciously question him about Jesus. Verse 18, they, they send for his parents, and they, they question his parents, and the parents, afraid that they're going to get kicked out of the synagogue, say, well, look, you know, he's a grown man. You ask him what happened. And so they come around again to, to question him again about Jesus, and the blind man basically says, look, let me tell you this. I don't know all that stuff about Jesus and whether he's a sinner. All I know is this. I once was blind, but now I see. And the entire scene then is featuring a man with a disability, blind from birth, being used to expose the blind hearts of the religious leaders, the Pharisees. Jump down with me to uh, John chapter 9, verses 39 to 41. This is what we read. Jesus said, For judgment I came into this world, that those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. Some of the Pharisees near him heard these things and said to him, Are we also blind? Jesus said to them, If you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say we see, your guilt remains. It's another stunning passage that um, shows us how the kingdom of God turns expectations on their head, flips everything upside down. The physically able are often the spiritually disabled, while the physically disabled are often the, often the spiritually able. Physical ability often results in spiritual impairment. This blind man reveals the hearts of the Pharisees who are still in their guilt and in their shame. Had the Pharisees been righteous, they would have cared for this man. I mean, when Job summarized and defended his righteousness, one of the things he says uh, is in Job 29, verses 15 and 16, I was eyes to the blind and feet to the lame. I was a father to the needy, and I searched out the cause of him whom I did not know. That's the heart of a righteous person. Job's righteousness was expressed in his care for the vulnerable, including people with disabilities. Job, Job's uh, good treatment of people with disabilities exposed the genuineness of his faith. Just as the Pharisees' bad treatment of the blind man exposed the falsity of their faith. The same is true of us. Matthew chapter 25, verses 40 and 45 they judge the sincerity of our faith by how we treat what Jesus calls the least of these, his brothers. So what does your attitude say? What does my attitude say about my heart, my attitude and your attitude toward people with disabilities? What does it reveal about our hearts? What does our service to people with disabilities, our friendship and community with people with disabilities reveal to us about the genuine state of our heart and faith. You see, the, the person with disabilities in our families, in our workplaces, in our churches, in our community, the person with disabilities uh, with embodied impairments intensifies our understanding of embodiment and what it means to be human. Throughout the centuries, people with disabilities have provoked in the minds of some the question of who is truly human. And for many centuries, 
people have gotten that wrong. They've argued because a person isn't rational intellectually, they're not human or fully human. They've argued that because a person has had some physical um, deformity or disability or impairment, that that person is, to use the language of the era, uh, monstrous or things of that sort. We've been wretched at answering these theological questions well, historically. In, in their embodied selves, with whatever limitations they have, uh, people with disabilities reveal to us both, um, A, our assignment uh, of humanity and dignity to them, and at the same time, B, how human and dignified we actually are, based on the assignment that we make. I want to press this point plainly, because when societies have assumed that people with disabilities are not fully human, that assumption has given rise to the worst forms of, of barbaric mistreatment and oppression of people made in God's image. So that assumption that somebody's not fully human gave rise to the Nazi concentration camps in Germany. Ten million Jewish people uh, killed uh, based upon that that bad theology, that, that assumption gives rise today to things like selective birth and abortion practices that, that allow us to identify whether or not uh, a child in the womb is, is likely to have uh, some kind of disability and allows the parent to make a termination decision based upon that. See, that's, this, is, this is where bad answers to these questions goes. It goes to death and destruction. Our theology has life and death consequences, beloved. So much of the fiercest battle of spiritual warfare occur at precisely this point. Whether or not we regard other people who are embodied differently as fully embodied human beings. That spiritual warfare and that assumption drives the actions of police officers who kill unjustly, and it drives the actions of community members who mistreat, alienate, marginalize, and create barriers for people with disabilities. To be properly pro-life is to have a very high view of human embodiment and to apply that high view of human embodiment to every human being inside and outside the womb. So we want to understand this and get this right. Which brings us to a fifth thing. People with disabilities point us toward friendship with God. They point us toward friendship with God. Remember that all the previous theology of the body uh, applies to persons with limitations. Uh, one aspect of that theology is that we are all made in God's image and likeness, which means that we are made uh, to display God's self-giving love. We've already talked about about that self-giving love with regard to marriage. But people with disabilities display this as well. They display it when they marry, but they also display this uh, if they're not married. They, they, they point us toward God's self-giving love, not in a sort of romantic, erotic sense of love, but in the, in the sort of sense of um, friendship. Very often the presence of disability requires a more intentional and dedicated friendship than would be the case 
where there's no one there with limitation. And friendship reveals the nature of God as one who gives himself away to his people. Think, for example, God spoke in Exodus 33:11 face to face with Moses as a man does with his friends. Or consider the fact that Abraham believed God and was called a friend of God, according to James 2:23. In the New Testament, in John 15, 15, Jesus says, I no longer call you servants, but I call you friends. So in various ways, God reveals himself to be a friend of sinners who believe in him. Now, when it comes to persons with disabilities in the New Testament, consider how often they are accompanied by friends. The paralyzed man on his bed in Mark 2, who was lowered through the roof so that he could be at the feet of Jesus, who was he lowered by? His friends. Jesus heals the man in Mark chapter 5 who had been tormented by demons, had been uh, chained in a cave outside the city, who often tore himself uh, from those chains and, and, and hurt himself. When Jesus heals that man, what Jesus says to him is, go and tell your friends what God has done for you. Who can forget the words of the New Testament, greater love has no one than to lay down his life for his friends. That's what happens when we receive the invitation of disability. We're called to lay down our lives for our friends. We are provoked to a, uh, a love that is self-giving and that deepens and reveals um, the beauty of, of, of genuine friendship. And in, and in the process, we find friends that our neighbors who have disabilities become friends to us. It's not a one-directional relationship. We begin to learn from them and to benefit from them and to live in a kind of um, sympathy with one another that enriches both, enriches, enriches us alike. It's because the character of God is being reflected in that relationship in a way that calls us up into that character. So when we see uh, someone with an impairment, someone with a limitation, we are being invited to the demonstration of God's self-giving love in the form of friendship. I love the way, the way one lady put this as I was reading and preparing uh, for this service. The lady with a disability, she was meditating on friendship. And she talked about how sometimes she could be someplace like in a store uh, in her wheelchair or something. And she's capable of, of reaching an item or getting the item herself. But she sees someone nearby and she asks them for help. And she says, I'm not asking for help for myself. She says, it's interesting to see how the face changes when I ask for help and how the person opens up, and how the person gives. And she says, it was interesting to me, she says, I ask for help in order to set them free. In order to set them free from distraction, in order to set them free um, from selfishness, in order to set them free to give themselves away. That's what friendship does. That's what God calls us to. And we're being invited into that as we love and care for and live with people with disabilities. One final thing. In a theology of embodiment and disability, people with disabilities reveal the radical inclusion of God's kingdom, the inclusive, radically inclusive nature 
of God's kingdom. That's the point I want to make from Jesus' parable of the great banquet in Luke chapter 14, verses 12 and 24. In the context, Jesus is at a dinner party at someone's house. He notices that the people are, are trying to sort of get the best seats, which the Lord identifies as pride. Then he says these famous words in verse 11, that he who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. And then he turns in verse 12 to the person who was hosting the dinner party and begins to address that person. This is what we read in Luke 14, beginning in verse 12. He said also to the man who had invited him, when you give a dinner or a banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you. For you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. Notice here, Jesus says, listen, our hospitality is not really a swap meet. It's not really an exchange. You know, uh, I hooked you up for dinner one night. Uh, a week later, you hooked me up for dinner the following night. No, Jesus redirects hospitality from family and friends and the famously wealthy to people on the margins, including people with disabilities. Jesus says this is the kind of hospitality that leads to God's blessing uh, in the resurrection of the just. In other words, this is what righteous people do and, and what they are rewarded for. Verse 15 continues the story. Jesus says, when one of those who reclined at table with him heard these things, he said to him, blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. But Jesus said to him, tells the story now, a man once gave a great banquet and invited many. At the time for the banquet, he sent his servant to say to those who had been invited, Come, for everything is now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said to him, I have bought a field and I must go out and see it. Please have me excused. Another said, I have bought five yoke of oxen and I go to examine them. Please have me excused. Another said, I have married a wife and therefore I cannot come. So the servant came and reported these things to his master. Then the master of the house became angry and said to his servant, Go out quickly to the streets and lanes of the city and bring in the poor and crippled and blind and lame. And the servant said, Sir, what you commanded has been done and still there is room. And the master said to the servant, Go out to the highways and hedges and compel people to come in that my house may be filled. For I tell you, none of those men who were invited shall taste my banquet. The point of this parable is that the kingdom includes the marginalized, the, the poor and those with disabilities, the, the, the blind, the crippled, the blind, the lame. These are the ones to whom God's kingdom Comes and these are the ones who find welcome in God's kingdom. The, those who love the world and are quote unquote able body, a terrible phrase, actually miss out on the kingdom because they're too focused on earthly advantages. Did you notice that? People with disabilities are not disregarded by God when it comes to salvation. 
God has a special interest in them. God uses them to, in fact, picture um, the inclusion of his kingdom, who who it is he actually gathers into his banquet, into his feast. God's kingdom is otherworldly, and it's radical in in its adding of sort of marginalized people. The parable teaches us that we we should see people with disabilities the way God does. We should invite them, include them, honor them in our homes. As we include and honor them, we reflect the kingdom and we receive the the kingdom's blessing. The news of the banquet has gone out. Who will respond? Well, not those who think they're fine the way they are who are more concerned about a field that they bought or an oxen that they bought or a wife that they've just married. They don't respond. They're just like the Pharisees who think they see but are blind. The ones who respond to this kingdom are those who actually, uh, in point of fact, are not usually the ones who are invited, who are thought of in very high terms by society and the world. It's the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, who ironically, the blind are the ones who see, the lame are the ones who walk, who who sprint into the kingdom, the deaf are the ones who hear the voice of God, the poor are the ones who come with no money and buy, because that's what God is like. He loves the broken, he loves the marginalized, he calls them, he compels them, the text says, to come to his table and to eat with him. That's why Jesus came, to die, to pay for our sins, to be raised from the grave for our justification, to bring salvation to cripples and lame and deaf and blind, to sinners who would turn to him, who would turn away from their sin, turn away from worldly distraction from lands and and possessions and even family, and put their faith in him as their God and their Savior and follow him in faith. Those will enter the kingdom of heaven. And the king, for those who are with disabilities, with severe limitations, to indicate that the kingdom is for them. He shared our brokenness that we might share his wholeness. So I want to encourage you this morning if you're not yet a Christian, to do precisely that. Take your brokenness to Jesus. Seek his salvation. Take your sins to Jesus. Confess them. Turn away from them. Be done with them. And put your trust in him as your God who will rescue you from the judgment to come and bring you to his banquet. Feast with you for all of eternity. Not just as a servant, but as a friend. And not just as a friend, but as an adopted son or daughter to God. Put your faith and your trust in him. Well, these are the the six things or so that are a beginning sketch of a theology of embodiment and of disability. I want us to end real quickly with a few applications. How how should we live in light of our theology of disability? So many things we could say, way more things than we have time to say, but I want to give us four things really quickly. Number one, Given this theology, we should support and comfort families who are caring for members with disabilities. 
One of the most consistent needs parents and families have is a need for respite, a need for rest, to, to sort of be off the clock for a moment. It's really taxing. It's really difficult to care for someone uh, with disabilities or care for someone with chronic illnesses, for example, uh, full time, every day, without a break. So one of the ways we can serve one another is, is simply by going over and if the, if the person with a disability is a, a young child, for example, babysit for a few hours. Babysit overnight if the parents will allow that. Let them get away, get a respite. Uh, spend some time just building a friendship, building a relationship with the ones we're caring for and, and caring for their normal caregivers by giving them a break. That's one application. Number two, we want to be advocates for people with disabilities. We'll be advocates uh, with and for people with disabilities. Proverbs 31, 8 and 9 calls us to speak up for the vulnerable, to speak up for the oppressed. Uh, if this is a new area of thought for you, advocacy for people with disabilities, let me encourage you to, to do the homework. Um, read some things on disability, the different kinds of communities, the different types of disabilities, the different needs uh, that are out there, the different ways in which they experience marginalization and exclusion and, and prejudice. And, and having educated yourself a little bit, then I'll encourage you to speak up with your family, with your friends, in your workplace, uh, in the church. Be an advocate for uh, persons who often don't have a voice. And part of that advocacy, I want to encourage you uh, to make part of that advocacy finding ways for them to be voices for themselves, uh, to speak for themselves, and to, to join them in that. Number three, contribute to flourishing. Contribute to flourishing. We don't want a world or a church where people with disabilities are merely tolerated. We want a world where they flourish. I love the way uh, one writer, Amos Young, uh, put this. He has a, a brother who was born with Down syndrome, and uh, he's written a book on uh, theology of Down syndrome. He says this, Whatever else disability is, it is also the experience of discrimination, marginalization, and exclusion from the social, cultural, political, and economic domains of human life. And part of the solution to disability is to overcome the barriers to full participation in these areas. So we, we want to be a part of the solution. We want to be a part of overcoming the barriers to full participation uh, in life. We want a world and a church where people flourish to the fullest extent of their abilities. So that means we have to remove barriers, create, create opportunities, and provide supports. If our theology says that God uses people with disabilities and displays his work in and through them, then we need to encourage that in every practical way and impractical way that we can. Number four, and finally, we want to practice full inclusion in the life of our church. Uh, we want to grow in our awareness of saints with disability. And we want to be active in their inclusion. Uh, we, we want to make sure there aren't access barriers for people who may be using a, a wheelchair or people who may be using a, a walker. Uh, we want to uh, minimize um, speech and hearing barriers where we can. So that might mean at some point investing in technology that allows for uh, hearing or, or some other kind of technology. We, we want to remove the barrier of our own prejudice. 
our own default assumption that a person who has a disability is unable to do something rather than simply differently abled. Uh, we we want to make sure that um, we're, we're spiritually qualified according to the scripture. Uh, people with disabilities uh, participate in the highest levels of our church life, right? So we, we want to envision a day and pray for a day where some of our elders are uh, men with disabilities. We want to see some of our deacons and deaconess, deaconesses serve um, who, who have some physical impairment. Uh, we want many of our ministries, small groups and other things, to be um, people, to be staffed and, and, and served by people with disabilities. We want to make sure that our social lives and our social calendars uh, include people with disabilities. Um, if we have children with disabilities, we, we want to make sure that um, we, we have playmates with, uh, our kids have playmates and play dates with, with other children, some of whom have disabilities, some of them don't. This is especially important if, if you have children uh, who are developing without disabilities, uh, without impairments. Be intentional about seeking out the parents and children, or the parents of children uh, with special needs or, or with disabilities. Be, be intentional about that. Help to sort of dry up the loneliness and the isolation and help to create uh, a social milieu of flourishing and refreshment. We want a full inclusion of every person made in God's image in the life and the work and the ministry of our church family. And it's because we believe that people who are embodied with limitations have different limitations than us, but are no less made in God's image. And their bodies point as fully to the kingdom of God as us, all the rest of our bodies. When we live that way, we'll be a stellar commercial for the kingdom of glory. Let's pray again. Father, we do pray that you would give us grace to live this way. Take this theology and to apply it deeply and widely and to bring you glory by it, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.